Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Sleepwalkers is a production of iHeartRadio and Unusual Productions. Hey, it's Kara. How are you doing? Are you in a precarious situation? Not really. (laughs) Where are you? Can you say where you are? (laughs) You sound... Like you can't talk. Yeah. Okay. I've been working on sleepwalkers so much. Yeah. So I know what you're thinking. Kara isn't normally that distracted. But the truth is, that wasn't her speaking. We're playing pre-recorded fakes of her voice to her cousin, created by AI. Are you sleeping? Did I wake you? I feel so tired. I'm sorry. I wanted to talk to you about the Who guest list. I stupidly... Huh? I stupidly left my wallet at home, and I need to order tickets to the screening before it sells out. What screening? I'm not sure. Same conversation. Are you? You know. Could you read me a card number real fast, or text me a pic of your card? I'll Venmo you back. Are you? You talking to me, your cousin Leslie, right? Hello. Yeah. I think we're crossing paths here. You're not answering me in a weird you're answering me in a weird way hello she's right you are answering yeah, a weird yeah. way <laughs> then she hung up on me <laughs> so what was it like hearing leslie respond to robot Kara? well it reminded me that it's very easy to prank people when they have no context for what you're doing it took her like a full minute to be like oh Kara's tired not yeah. like that's not Kara. <laughs> you know as long as i call my dad and i'll say to him after a minute Dad, are you playing internet chess? <laughs> <laughs> well, there is what they call, there's tech brain. Right. Which is when someone's texting and talking to you, they're like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh-huh, and yeah. that's sort of what it sounds yeah. like. She was yeah. like, are you having another conversation? <laughs> Has she forgiven you? She's forgiven Robocara. I'm still not off the hook. Sorry. Fake audio and fake video can be a lot of fun for pranks. And there are some life-changingly positive uses for synthetic media that we'll hear about later. But 
Just how much trouble could deep fakes get us into? And as they get easier to make, how can we keep them out of the hands of the wrong people? I'm Oz Voloshin. Welcome to Sleepwalkers. The plan originally was to get Cousin Leslie's credit card detail. That failed. Yeah, Julian had the idea of having Kara AI ask for credit card information basically to prove how easy it is to get somebody's credit card information. You can imagine if it was a little bit better and you were talking to someone and they were like, oh my God, my grandchild, you know, needs money. Oh my God, my grandchild is in trouble. That they would say, okay, hold on a minute, I'll, I'll get you the credit card number. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I think that's what's so frightening about this technology. We're going to dive later into how you synthesized your voice. Um, But it's the same technological underpinning of the video that many people have seen of Jordan Peele basically speaking in Barack Obama's mouth. We're entering an era in which our enemies can make it look like anyone is saying anything at any point in time, even if they would never say those things. For instance, they could have me say things like, President Trump is a total and complete dipshit. So that was a computer neural network faking Barack Obama's facial features and mouth movement to literally look like he was speaking the words that Jordan Peele said. And that actually makes it even more persuasive than the fake audio we just heard of your voice. Because when you see something, you tend to believe it. That's why the phrase is... Seeing is believing. Thanks, Kara. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to come back to deep fakes, but before we get there, we're going to take a look at some other online trickery. Because the scariest part is that fakes actually don't have to be as sophisticated as your call to Cousin Leslie to wreak havoc. This is particularly true on Facebook. So we went to their headquarters in Palo Alto to meet Nathaniel Gleicher. He's the head of cybersecurity policy at Facebook, and he told me about an incident last summer that created a true dilemma for him and his team. In July, we conducted a takedown of a fairly small network of pages that were operating in the U.S., showed links back to Russian actors. And what they were doing was, among other things, creating events where they were inviting Americans to come to protests. And in particular, this was around the Unite the Right 2 movement, which happened in 2018. It was the anniversary of the bloody clashes in Charlottesville in 2017, and the far right wanted to gather again. This time, Russia was watching. And there was an event that popped up, which was the No Unite the Right 2 movement. This was a counter-protest. There were authentic counter-protests being planned, But this one was being convened by... A group of inauthentic pages and accounts, which were linked back to Russia, that were clearly attempting to sort of bring Americans together in a space where they would go into physical conflict. Immediately after creating the event, they then went out and invited legitimate, unwitting activists to co-host the event with them. Let's pause for a moment. This is Russia we're talking about, and they're creating a Facebook event to appeal to liberal activists designed to draw them into physical conflict with the far right and create the kind of scenes that tear at our social fabric. But the people co-hosting it are not Russian agitators. They're US citizens acting in good faith. What we saw in that case and what we're increasingly seeing is these actors trying to lure their behavior with domestic actors to force not just the platforms, but all of us to ask, how do you separate these? Ultimately, Facebook had to make a decision. We removed that event from Facebook because it was created by inauthentic actors. If someone else had created it, that event would have been fine. So we removed the event, 
But then we reached out to the co-hosts, the authentic hosts, and we explained to them what had happened. And we made clear, if you want to host your own event, you should do that. We just want to make sure that we everyone understands what's happening. And what did they say? And what was their reaction to realize that their free will had been manipulated in that way? If you look at reactions, it's a range of sort of disbelief, right? I don't think this was what you're saying it was, to can't believe this happened, to okay, that happened, but I strongly believe in this, and I'm going to go, and I'm going to advocate for my issues somewhere else. That spectrum of difficulty is exactly why we see actors use these techniques, because there are no easy answers here. My assumption going into this was that detecting misinformation would be the biggest challenge for Facebook. But that's the easy part. It's after you identify the fakes that the really tough questions begin. We know that particularly the government actors in this space, part of their information dominance strategy is to make themselves appear bigger and more powerful than they are. They want to seem like they're everywhere. And it's really easy to see foreign government manipulation under every rock. I think it's really important not to play into the hands of these actors and sort of overplay their own influence. This is a tension we struggle with. Whenever we conduct a takedown, for some of these operations, the most attention it gets is when we take it down. The entire situation puts Facebook in a catch-22. If they leave the content up, they're helping to promote a foreign government's nefarious agenda. If they take it down, the foreign government gets all this attention for being more powerful and cleverer than they actually are. These decisions are incredibly hard. Think of Charlottesville. Think of Pizzagate. Think of Lane Davis, who stabbed his own father after an argument over the conspiracy theory about liberal pedophiles. Fakes can kill. And Facebook has recognized this. For a start, they hired Nathaniel, a former cybercrimes prosecutor in the US Department of Justice. And in March of this year, Mark Zuckerberg announced a company-wide pivot towards privacy and encrypted messaging, including services like WhatsApp, which they own. But David Kirkpatrick, founder of Techonomy, notes that the pivot carries its own problems. If you look at South Asia, where there's a lot of ethnic discord, political violence, notably in India, Indonesia, Myanmar, uh, Sri Lanka, one of the primary ways that that spreads is in group messages in WhatsApp. People in the U.S. don't typically use WhatsApp for group messages, but in, in places like India and Indonesia, they do. And these groups aren't five or six people, your, your parents and your brother and sister. These are bigger No, these groups. are like you subscribe to a political leader or a religious zealot. So this is more like the dear leader being piped into your home. Right. So the problem has been almost more severe in those systems than on Facebook itself of fake news and ethnic hatred being disseminated because WhatsApp is a encrypted service. So the service itself can't even see what the messages are that are being distributed. What's scary is it doesn't take any technical sophistication or knowledge on the part of people writing these messages, spreading this misinformation. They're just using WhatsApp. Yeah, and these are just messaging apps and social media platforms. But what they mean is that a single message can spread like wildfire. And of course, the history of new communication technology tends to go hand in hand with violence. When the printing press, i.e. books, came to Europe, they unleashed religious wars, but they also made the world literate. And we've mentioned this before, technology is usually dual use, which relates back to deepfakes. Mostly when you read about deepfakes, probably thanks in part to the fact they're called deepfakes, uh, the coverage is not very positive. 
There have been more and more stories, though, about positive uses for deep fakes. So when we come back, I'm going to tell you more about how I faked my own voice and also some of the things that I learned in the process. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hermosi, Layla Hermosi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of MoviePhone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. We started this conversation a few weeks ago, and then you asked us to create uh, this artificial voice based on your identity. That's Jose Sotelo, the co-founder of Lyrebird. They're the company who made Robot Kara and helped me prank my cousin. And they've published a version of their tools online at lyrebird.ai. Here's how it works. 
I know it might sound a bit like magic, but uh, in reality, the way that uh, our algorithms work is basically they are just uh, pattern matching algorithms. And so it's trying to figure out uh, how to identify the patterns in your voice by comparing it against thousands of other voices, actually tens of thousands of other voices, and trying to figure out what is it that makes your voice unique. Once Jose's algorithms identified what was unique about my voice, obviously everything, they had the building blocks they needed to make a fake. Then we sent Jose a set of sentences we wanted Robot Kara to say, and he used another set of algorithms to turn the text into what we heard. The way they do this is they use what's called a generative adversarial network, a GAN, which is a system where one neural net tries to trick another one a thousand times per second. So each time the second network detects a fake, the first one tries again. It basically learns from its mistakes, and once it tricks its adversary, it's ready to show its results. In our case, Lyrebird pits my fake voice against my real voice until it sounds like this. Sup, dog. It's Kara. As this technology becomes more widely available, so does the potential for abuse. And while Lyrebird develops the technology, they don't take the ethics lightly. But Jose has an entirely different fear. We believe that the biggest risk of this kind of technology comes from the fact that not a lot of people uh, know about it. I believe that society is not ready for what's going to happen when this technology becomes widespread. And so I really want to make my best effort in trying to showcase it to the public so that they are at least prepared for what's coming. When people know a scheme exists, they're less likely to be tricked by it. But if you don't know deep fakes are possible, you're much more likely to fall for them. Leslie might have been better equipped to call my bluff had she known it was even possible. But here's the thing. While there are inevitable misuses of deep fakes, both behind us and on the horizon, there are a number of extraordinary benefits of this technology, which is why Jose is working on it. When people are diagnosed with ALS, it's because they start to lose their movement skills in, let's say, their hands or their feet. And so they go to the doctor and then the doctor tells them, like, you know what, this can be uh, ALS. And this gets progressively worse. This was the case for Pat Quinn, the co-founder of the Ice Bucket Challenge. A sense of hope. It created a real fight within the ALS community. This is a public battle now. Pat was diagnosed with ALS, and it ultimately took his ability to speak, walk, and use his hands. During this time, since they are diagnosed, until they lose their voice, they have some time. And so the idea is that during this time, they will be able to record themselves, uh, ideally in a really high-quality setting. Then based on these recordings, we will be able to create an artificial copy of their voice, which they will be able to continue using uh, for the rest of their life. Lyrebird has partnered with the ALS Foundation to create Project Revoice. Just imagine how it would feel for them to, let's say, not be able to tell their husband or their wife, I love you anymore, to tell this to their kids. And so using this technology, uh, they are able to keep this really important part of their identities. Using the exact same technology I used to create my deep fake. Lyrebird was able to give Pat the ability to preserve his voice for the rest of his life. It's a strange feeling saying your first words a second time. It's like you don't even realize how powerful, how personal, and how unique your voice really is until it's taken from you. My voice was how I fought back against the very disease trying to take it from me. 
say something, listen to it. No one else has your voice. Since revoicing Pat, Lyrebird has received a number of emails from ALS patients asking if it's possible for them to do the same thing, preserve this part of themselves which they know they're going to lose. And Jose has heard from people who have lost family in other ways. For instance, we have received uh, quite a lot, actually, very emotional emails about people telling some variation of this. My wife died three months ago, and I have two children, age four and six, and I would really, really love to be able to tell them a goodnight story in the voice of their mother, or to tell them that in the mother's voice, I love you, I am proud of you, uh, be happy. The tools on Lyrebird AI are intentionally less advanced and meant to just spread awareness. But Lyrebird's more bespoke tools open amazing possibilities for changing how we deal with loss and grief. I would like to ask you just one question, which is like, how would you feel, let's say, about uh, recording the voice of your parents and, and keeping them? What do you think? Would you like to do this? Or, or how do you feel about that? It was interesting when Jose asked me this because I'd actually thought about it ever since I learned about Lyrebird. When I was 15, so 14 years ago, uh, my dad died in a fatal car accident. And nobody prepares for accidents. You know, one minute my dad walked out the door, and 45 minutes later, the police showed up at the same door to tell us what happened. And so I never got to see or speak to my dad ever again. Sometimes my therapist will ask me if I think about what I would talk about with my dad if he was still alive. And I always say that, you know, I don't. I don't think about that too much. Because it's sad to think about that. Because he's not actually around and because I know I can't talk about him. But it's also hard to conceive of. You know, I can't recall off the top of my head what he sounds like. And sometimes I'll hear his voice when we watch home movies and it always spooks me out. So the idea of having his disembodied voice ask me things like, how do you like working on this podcast? Or what's the most amazing thing you've learned? Or even saying things like, I'm so proud of you. Do you know that? I'm not sure how I'd react to his voice like that. Regardless, the thought of it as something in the realm of possibility is equal parts chilling and exciting. I actually think, given the chance, I might do it. This is not a science fiction thing or something that will exist 100 years from now. It's something that exists already today. People can even go and, and try it. And as my cousin Leslie learned, these deepfakes are already good enough to use on unassuming family members. Sup, dog? Yeah? This isn't Kara. This is artificial Kara. Oh my God! My voice right now, <laughs> it's AI. This is awful. <laughs> You're scaring me. When we started reporting on deepfakes, I never anticipated how moving the technology could be. I was more focused on the dangers, and they are worth considering too. One person who is out in front bringing awareness to the potential harms of fake media is Danielle Citrin. She's a legal professor at the University of Maryland and the author of Hate Crimes in Cyberspace. Machine learning technology and neural networks can learn from your photo and voice that's taken from recordings of your voice can sufficiently learn enough about your face and the way it moves and your voice so that it can create 
really incredibly difficult to debunk uh, videos of you doing and saying things you never did. Now, we all know how dangerous the simple written word can be. Danielle got interested in how fake video could increase the forces of hate exponentially. There was a whole Reddit thread devoted to deep fake sex videos of celebrities, female celebrities like Emma Watson, Anne Hathaway, and others. If you went through the thread, which I did, you can see the conversation moving beyond Emma Watson to my bitch girlfriend or that woman I hated in high school. And it was, it was all a conversation about women. You know, what I thought was like the evil of cyberstalking was all based on crude doctored photos of someone naked. But if you worked at it, you could figure it out. Now we can put people into pornography in ways that are going to devastate their careers. So, Kara, I do think it says something that this new technology is being used to target women. And a lot of these conversations are happening on the same forums on Reddit where the incel movement was born. Right. So I think this is especially important when we talk about famous women and their likeness. Uh, A lot of men on the internet want to see their favorite actresses in positions that they wouldn't be able to see those actresses in. And so with this technology, it's quite easy to put someone's face on somebody else's body without the consent of the actual actress. And actually, SAG, the Screen Actors Guild, held a panel a few weeks ago to bring this up, that like, yes, we're, we're talking about this in terms of democracy and our political system and the upcoming election, but we also have to talk about this in terms of the livelihood of women who make money on their likeness and whose likeness is now being misappropriated. Yeah, because it can destroy their careers and silence them. There was actually a case in India where people attempted to use deepfake pornography to intimidate and silence a journalist called Rana Ayub. And I spoke about that case with Danielle. The Indian journalist who had been very critical of Hindu politics, uh, nationalist politics, and a deep fake sex video sort of was spread basically to discredit her um, and spread through texting networks and went viral. And she basically was devastated and went offline and stopped writing for like three weeks. She's a journalist. This is what she does for a living, right? So imagine that kind of granular individual harm um, and compare it with harm to CEOs the night before an IPO. A deep fake is released that shows this person taking a bribe or doing drugs or whatever, making it up. But that tanks the IPO, right? This kind of video manipulation used to be confined to places like Disney, and the output was blockbuster movies that are fictional but not fake. Now AI is being consumerized, and the tools to create convincing video are spreading. And that means creating the kind of chaos Danielle describes is also more and more accessible. That threatens all of us. One person working on the issue is Hani Farid of Dartmouth University, who has been called the father of digital forensics. I'm concerned that once we know you can create fake content, there is nothing stopping anybody from saying that any video is fake. Everybody has plausible deniability. So rewind two years ago when the Access Hollywood tape came out of President Trump saying what he does to women, the response from the campaign was not, this is fake. It was, we apologize. This was locker room talk. They found ways of trying to excuse it. If that was today 100% guaranteed, he would have said it was fake. And in fact, a year ago, after having apologized for for the audio recording, he said it was fake. And so now politicians have plausible deniability. And at a time when... Our U.S. president is demonizing the press and telling everybody that you can't believe anything. 
that credible deniability holds some weight. And so I'm extremely concerned. Now, how do we distinguish what's what? And that, I think, for a democracy is going to be incredibly challenging. So when nothing is believable, the mischief doer can say it's a lie. Do you know what I'm saying? Like the person who commits the crime or does something and says something incriminatory can say that's a fake. So the more you educate people about deep fakes, the evildoers can leverage that and say, well, you can't believe anything, right? Danielle calls this the liar's dividend. In a world where nothing can be trusted, everything can be denied, and even documented bad deeds can be explained away. This kind of thing is accelerated by deepfakes, though, which is why I think there are some attempts to correct it with law. With law, like the anti-deepfakes law? Very similar, the Malicious Deepfake Prohibition Act of 2018, which was introduced by this Republican senator from Nebraska named Ben Sass. And it basically aims to outlaw fraud in connection to audiovisual records. But I don't know if this law will pass. In any case, not all deepfakes are malicious. And so we have to be careful with laws which are too broad. As we heard in your Liarbird piece, there are some amazingly positive applications of deepfake uh, technology. Here's Hani Farid talking about deepfakes and the movie business. Can you imagine a world where the actor can simply license their appearance and they never have to show up on the set? You say, look, here's a bunch of images of me. Synthesize me doing whatever you want. I'm basically an animated character for you. And then anybody can be in the movies. You can imagine customized movies. Imagine I go to the movie and I say, look, I'd like to see this movie, but with George Clooney and not Kevin Spacey in it. Please synthesize that for me. It, can we do that today or tomorrow? No. But in theory, that is essentially where we're going. So if you if you haven't seen some of these, people are creating all these deepfake videos of Nick Cage and inserted into all these different movies. That's essentially, and I, now it's not the full-length movie, they're doing it into clips, but that's essentially the trend where you can just put your favorite actor or actress into whatever movie you want and just watch it. It's personalized movies. I'm not going to lie. I find it super weird that Nicolas Cage has become the poster boy for having his face deepfaked into various movies. I wonder if you actually asked internet nerds, why Nick Cage? What do you think? They'd be like, I, I have no idea. <laughs> well, he was kind of already a meme, right? He was. And he was in Face Off, where his face was switched with another person's face. So he's always sort of been the poster child for face swapping. You know, I think actually one thing that I thought about is this idea of representation. You know, if there's a movie or movies or a series like James Bond where the lead character has been historically white. Always white. And you want to show your African-American son, James Bond, it would be kind of cool to make James Bond black, mm. right? Because then your child could be watching a movie where James Bond looks like your child. Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the big problems in the movie business and the media business in general is representation. So more people do have access to this technology now, but it used to be that only a Hollywood special effects company would have access to this technology. When you remove the gatekeepers, you get these incredible explosions of culture, uh, but you also get real threats to the social fabric. And so in the case of deep fakes, um, they're all very well when they're labeled as fake or when we know they're fake. But when they're posing as real, that's when we start to be really under threat, I think, as a society. But there are people working on this, as ever, cat and mouse. When we come back, we'll talk about some of the ways they're fighting back. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. 
It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hermosi, Layla Hermosi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, chief marketing and growth officer at AT AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When it comes to deep fakes, Pandora's box is open. And as Jose argues, there's no turning back the clocks. The technology exists. So knowing deep fakes and fake news are becoming more sophisticated, I wanted to find out how actual news organizations are thinking about the problem. So I spoke with John Micklethwaite, editor-in-chief of Bloomberg News. And he actually started by pointing out that fake news isn't new news. I think one crucial thing when you look at fake news is to admit it's always been there. You know, the first beat of fake news was the Trojan horse. Fake news and propaganda have forever been some of the more exotic weapons in global conflict. John points to another example involving the famous British spy and author of James Bond. Ian Fleming, supposedly one of his great schemes was to drop 
lots of jumbo-sized condoms over Germany um, and label sort of British small on the outside. In the end, in the aim, with the aim, no doubt, wrongly of destabilizing German manhood. My point is that there are many, many ways in which you can do this. But the most interesting thing to me about fake news is that really in modern history, it's tied very heavily to technology. What tends to happen is a new technology comes along which suddenly sets media free. If we look to history, we can understand this moment better. We mentioned the early printing press before and how it enabled explosions of ideology and led to religious conflicts. Well, when the printing press was industrialized in the 19th century, there was another fake news boom. Go back to, I think it's 1801, you have the invention of the steam press in London. And what that does is it enables people to multiply by 10 the amount of paper that you can print. Suddenly, all the way across Europe and then in America, free ship newspapers start springing up because you can distribute far more, you can reach far more people far more quickly. And the most notorious of this was the New York Sun, at one time, I think, the world's biggest selling paper run by a man called Benjamin Day. And he would run some stories like the moon was populated by people who were half human, half bat. But what happened, and I think this will happen again, is that consumers said... We don't want to read that. We need facts. And so if you look back at many of the big newspapers of our time, the New York Times, The Economist, where I used to work, many of these things came from that particular period because people paid more to get things they trusted. Well, that is definitely happening again. In other words, most of the high-quality press today, The New York Times, The Economist, which John also edited, came from consumer demand for trustworthy information. And that same consumer demand may help us out of today's predicament. But there is one key difference. Now we have deep fakes. It's worth a lot of money to a lot of people to try to fool us. So you look at things like Twitter handles that aren't quite the same. It's a mixture between humans and, and computers you use to, to deal with those. What is harder at the moment is video. So to give you an example, I think a year or so ago, there was an attack in a subway in New York. We could verify really quite quickly that the subway attack had happened. But almost immediately there was a picture on Twitter of one of the alleged assailants lying in a pool of blood. Now, trying to verify that that was true was much harder. And it came down to things like working out whether that was the correct subway floor. You can look at pixels, you can look at all those different things. But yes, verifying video is often harder than verifying facts. Do you have any tools or technologies that you're licensing or spending money on to, to do it? We, we spend a lot of money on technology across all these fronts. With more and more news coming directly from social media, large news organizations like Bloomberg News need to be able to verify which photos and videos are real and whether they actually relate to the events they're investigating, which is why Hani Farid is in such high demand. Suddenly, the, the need to authenticate content has really global implications. Everything from our courts to our national security to our democratic elections to uh, citizen safety is starting to rely on our ability to tell the real from the fake. And so I think this field of forensics, this field of authentication has never been more important. And that's what Harney spends his days working on. At Dartmouth, he develops techniques to analyze and authenticate digital media. Ahead of the 2020 elections, he's working on what he calls a soft biometric tool to detect fake videos of specific politicians, such as Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and Donald Trump. Um, I would say the game is going to be that 
We never eliminate the ability to create fake um, content, but what we do is we raise the bar. We take it out of the hands of the amateurs, we take it out of the hands of the average person downloading some code, and we make it more difficult, more time-consuming, and more risky. And this is the same thing that we do with counterfeit currency. You can still create counterfeit currency today, but it's really hard. It's still a risk, but it's a more manageable risk. On the subject of money, there are digital currencies which are much more difficult to counterfeit than coins and banknotes. You've heard of Bitcoin and Ethereum, which are enabled by blockchain, a so-called distributed ledger. Information about transactions is shared between all the users of the currency, rather than authenticated and guarded by a bank. Sharing this kind of information across a crowd of people with multiple backup copies has a range of uses. One thing Harney is looking at is using blockchain to authenticate images and videos at source. We're going to start seeing um, the use of a different type of camera. So there are now companies out there that create what are called secure imaging pipelines. And so when you record an image or a video, they extract a unique signature from that content, they cryptographically sign it, and they put that on the blockchain. So that's basically a distributed ledger that's very, very hard, if not impossible, to manipulate. Perhaps staying ahead of the perpetrators and making fakes more difficult is the best we can do. But what about our usage? How much responsibility do we have to navigate the web thoughtfully? And how much responsibility should be on the platforms? We have Facebook, we have Twitter, we have Yelp, because they're not responsible for user-generated content. What's interesting is that, like Nathaniel at Facebook, Danielle also sees risks in overzealous moderation. If you put too much responsibility on the platform, you will likely incentivize over-censorship. So all the great things that we think about a lot of these platforms, and especially the social media, the Parkland survivors, or Black Lives Matters, right? We don't want to lose the facility and new enablements for organizing and speech. So if you put too much liability on the platforms, they're going to overreact. And anything anyone complains about and have very aggressive filters, so we might very well miss Black Lives Matter. We might not have Parkland and never see it because you're going to have overly aggressive censorship. Here's Nathaniel again. Whenever people come together in a new medium, you're going to have people that try to manipulate it and try to take advantage. I think one of the things that's really fundamentally true that we have done when we think about the internet generally, social media as well, is we've removed some of the traditional gatekeeping mechanisms that have existed in the past. And that has meant that far more people could engage much more quickly and much more vocally than ever before. And that has led to some incredible things. If you think about the Me Too movement, which really part of what drives it and enables it is the ability to route around some of those gatekeepers, right? But at the same time, you're also going to see malicious actors try to misuse that. I think that is a fundamental truth for any form of media. The question is, how do you enable authentic engagement while making the types of manipulation that we see more difficult? If Facebook and other platforms are too destructive of society, ultimately everyone loses even the technology companies and their shareholders. So how do we move from understanding that to finding solutions? Here's David Kirkpatrick again. If we are going to retain democracy, we need technical systems, digital systems, technologies that more effectively and persuasively, compellingly distribute knowledge so that we have citizens that are capable of functioning in a democratic landscape that is more complex, 
more rapidly changing, and ultimately more global. And as far as Hani Farid is concerned, this has become everyone's problem, so we all have a part to play in solving it. I think two things are going to have to change. So one is the technology to authenticate is going to have to get better. So whether that's authenticating at the source or the types of things that I do with authenticating content and operating that at scale, that's going to have to get better. But I think what's also going to have to change is how we as consumers of digital content think about what we see. We are going to have to become more critical, more reasoned. We have to get out of our echo chambers. We have to stop allowing social media to manipulate us in the way that they do. So I think the solution is at least two-pronged and potentially three with some legislative relief down the line to really force the companies to do better than they have been over the last few years. So does the good outweigh the bad? I don't know. We have to have a hard conversation. People in, who work in infectious disease and physicists who develop weaponry, they think about this all the time. We as technologists have not quite thought about this as much in the past because our field is so young. But I think now, you know, it's time to wake up and start asking those hard questions and having those conversations before it's too late. Once again, we're being urged to wake up from our sleepwalk. And we do have some answers, at least when it comes to deep fakes. We can make it akin to counterfeiting money. The people who do it will get prosecuted and programmers like Harney will work on detection technology. But we still have to hold the bills up to the light before we decide whether to accept them. That's our job. That is, if we're not too busy watching Nicolas Cage starring as Thelma and Louise in Thelma and Louise. Even more complicated than deep fakes is the concentration of power at companies like Facebook. In the next episode, we visit a secret lab at Google to understand what happens when technology companies start taking on the role of the state. And we speak with Lena Khan, who has proposed new regulation to balance the power of big technology companies like Amazon. I'm Oz Veloshin. See you next time. Sleepwalkers is a production of iHeartRadio and Unusual Productions. For the latest AI news, live interviews, and behind-the-scenes footage, find us on Instagram at sleepwalkerspodcast or at sleepwalkerspodcast.com. Sleepwalkers is hosted by me, Oz Veloshin. And co-hosted by me, Kara Price. We're produced by Julian Weller, with help from Jacopo Penzo and Taylor Shacoin. Mixing by Tristan McNeil and Julian Weller. Recording assistance this episode from Topher Ralph. Our story editor is Matthew Riddle. Sleepwalkers is executive produced by me, Oz Veloshin, and Mangesh Hatikada. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. It's brand new, season two. 
I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.